You are listening to a White Ridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. My wife and I have been at the Overseas Ministry Study Center, which is at Yale University, for 16 years. I've been teaching, been directing, been editing a journal. But most importantly, we've been hosting uh, groups of Christian leaders, Christian missionaries, and Christian academics from all over the world, literally from all over the world. My wife and I just returned from a five-week trip that took us to China, where we met many of our alumni, almost all of them are scholars in various Chinese universities, and it's not easy for them to be Christians. And we were challenged and heartened by what we would think of as bravery in the face of great opposition. I was able to share with a group at Renmin University. If you've been in China, you know that's the People's University. That's the Communist Party's university in Beijing. A group that called itself the Nehemiah Group. And these are all scholars who have become Christians whilst studying in the West. And they have, they're part of a very strong church with about 1,500 members. And it's an underground church. I don't know what you think of when you think of underground. Do you think of a Winnipeg basement or something like that? This particular congregation <clears throat> meets on the fifth floor of a government building. They have the entire fifth floor. This was a great eye-opener to us. And uh, you walk into, off the elevator on the fifth floor, and you see Zion Church. And then you go into a cafeteria that goes all the time, to which the public have access, on the left-hand side, there's a bookstore. Then, of course, there's a, a meeting facility that's probably about the size of this. There's room for about 500 people to sit there, and it's filled three times every Sunday. This is the Nehemiah group. And we heard stories of how they are harassed by the university administrators from time to time who want them to tone down religion. And we were touched and challenged just by the vivid reality of their faith and their sense that they've found something that is too precious to ever give up, just as Doug was kind of alluding to this morning. We're also in Korea, and in Korea you have a different situation. You have a Korean church that meets here. And uh, Korea is really quite a remarkable story because in 1979 there were exactly 89 Korean missionaries serving abroad. Today there are 22,000 Korean missionaries serving abroad. And what's interesting about Koreans is they, they have this proverb, twice down, three times up. And so they choose the really tough places. And uh, I travel quite a bit. And when I visit with Koreans, for example, in Kazakhstan earlier la last year, uh, who are working in Uzbekistan, in Chechnya, in Georgia, in Mongolia, in really tough places, and doing wonderful mission work, planting churches, serving people as professors and as uh, technical instructors, as bankers, as businessmen, and so on and so forth. And it's just a marvel to us. <clears throat> and then we ended up with a bunch of Baptists. If you're in Korea, you're almost always with Presbyterians, various kinds and shades and permutations of Presbyterians. Then we went to Myanmar, to Burma, and uh, most Christians in Burma are Baptists. And we were there to help celebrate 200 years of the Baptist Church, all the, all the way back to Adoniram Judson 200 years ago, in Myanmar. 
And we wondered, because we'd been in Burma before, how can they possibly orchestrate and organize a conference for, for 30,000 people when the infrastructure is so rickety and when they simply don't have state-of-the-art uh, communications or, 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 or conference facilities? And uh, it was a marvel to us to see how, for example, they cooked the food for this group. How, do you, how would you like the task as a church? You prepare the food. That's all you have to do. Don't worry about anything else. Prepare the food for 30,000 people three times a day for five days. <laughs> no kitchens. And the food is prepared outdoors. Uh, it was, I won't go into that because I could get into it. But again, it was <clears throat> a marvel. I mentioned this at the outset of my message because really... I'm talking about what it means to have an identity in Christ Jesus that supersedes, complements, sometimes contradicts, but certainly supersedes any other identity that you might have. Because wherever we went in the world, we were with family. We shared the same DNA. We recognized each other. We could tell we're brothers and sisters. And it's a great thrill. And it's my privilege to, in my line of work, to travel quite extensively, mostly in Africa, but in Asia as well. And I can tell you, we're part of a big, big family. And we don't want to forget our identities. But for 16 years, <clears throat> my wife and I have been in New Haven, New Connecticut. <clears throat> uh, and this morning, I want to talk to you about the Declaration of Interdependence. We were struck when we lived in the United States with the enthusiasm with which the 4th of July is celebrated down there. Of course, Americans celebrate everything with enthusiasm as long as there's money involved. <laughs> but the 4th of July is a special occasion. And you know that the 4th of July is is the event that celebrates that little insurrection way back on July the 4th, 1776, when a group of disgruntled businessmen didn't like to pay taxes to Britain anymore because they didn't think they should be funding uh, George's wars, and so they broke away. And, of course, it, it was successful, and therefore, it's one of the insurrections that, uh, unlike many of the insurrections that are unfolding around the world today, in Syria, for example, is now viewed in hindsight with all the myths and the celebrations and the, the kind of, of airbrushing that national myths always get and that allow us to sing our national anthems and be proud to be whoever we are as uh, citizens of a nation. And although Christians in the United States also celebrate the 4th of July, sometimes just as enthusiastically as anybody else, there's still a little bit of hesitation. We're not comfortable with the self-congratulatory pride that's a part and parcel of nationalism. We're not sure that our nations are worthy of adulation. And we're not sure that it's wise or truthful to insist that we're better than everybody else. Maybe we're reminded, because of our own identity as Christians, 
of the Pharisees' prayer. There's many, many people around the world who've loved to insist that they're superior to the other people nearby, and Christians are not exempt from this. But when it comes to nationalism, of course, we're just better. That's why it's a disappointment to us that the Canadian junior hockey team didn't do very well, <laughs> because we're Canadians. Don't they know what this means to us? <laughs> But our scriptures make us aware that all nations, including Canada, are contingent. In God's cosmic drama, they're not there very long. They're certainly not eternal. They come and they go. And the Old Testament is replete with the unvarnished stories of nations that dominated the globe and then just disappeared. Persia, Chaldea, Babylon, and of course even little old Israel and Judah. And in the case of all of these nations, there were prophets whose messages are written in our Bibles who explain why nations can't survive. It's almost always because of an appropriation of injustice, a substitution of legality for justice. And nations love legality. Uh, my wife and I were quite involved with uh, a deportation of some very close Chinese professor friends from the United States uh, who were really victims of legality. Uh, who were dealt a great injustice in the name of law. And Christians all over, throughout time, have always been called upon by the prophets to distinguish between what your nation says is legal and what God says is just. And when we read the Old Testament, we realize that almost always this was the sin of Sodom. She had abundant ease, plenty of food, and she refused to help the poor and the needy. That's from Ezekiel chapter 16. That's the summary of the whole, all the prophets. And when Jeremiah Wright, I'm sure you heard about him when uh, Obama was running for president, when Jeremiah Wright almost destroyed Obama's chances because he spoke the truth to the United States, he said, God damn America. And he was just quoting from Jeremiah. Nobody likes to hear messages like that that call us to the impossible task of repenting, of turning around, because our sin builds up a kind of self-serving momentum. And we have too much momentum going. There's too much at stake to stop, turn around, and move the other direction. That's nations. No surprise, because they're not redeemed. They're not regenerated. They're not the people of God. They're just nations doing the best they can. But you and I, as Christians, have a loyalty to God that supersedes any national loyalty and an identity that makes us distinctive, an identity which is implicit and into which we grow 
It's implicit because of the grace of God. We grow because of God's calling that we become like Jesus and that we grow into Christ-likeness. And this is really what I want to talk about this morning. <clears throat> and this is where my short meditation on the Christian declaration of interdependence comes from. The text is from Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, which I read, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. In the prayer-phrased words of St. Paul, our task as Canadians who are Christians, or as Christians who happen to be Canadians, is not to perpetuate the empty way of life handed down to us by our forefathers. That's kind of a given. That's kind of acculturation, enculturation, education, all the processes that go into forming us as a people, speaking a certain language, living in a certain way under certain laws. But our primary task as the children of God is not to per perpetuate this empty way of life, but to serve others. My wife and I are very, very unusual grandparents because uh, we have a grandson who's, who's quite gifted and advanced and speaks earlier than everybody and uh, is just a marvel. I know most grandparents don't have this experience, but this is our experience. <laughs> so Francis is three years old, and he lives down in uh, Worcester, uh, Ohio. And uh, we noticed when we were visiting him a couple of weeks ago that he likes to make declarations of independence. So he's just like, let's say, a July 4th celebration all the time, uh, declaring his independence. And because he's only three, it's laughable. But because he's only three, it's also dangerous, potentially, if parents allow the spirit of independence to go unchecked, because really, he's interdependent. No matter what he feels like, no matter how he behaves, the fact of the matter is, this is a very dependent little boy. He needs his mommy and daddy. He needs his community. He's got lots to learn so that he can grow into an adult who, most importantly, is easy to live with <laughs> and who can become a good spouse, a caring parent, an active member of the community. And so that is the task of our children when they have our grandchildren. <clears throat> and as a matter of fact, no human being is independent when you think about it. There's no such thing as an independent human being. There's a book that uh, essentially utilizes an Ethiopian proverb because I grew up in Ethiopia I learned many of these things as a boy going to school there until I finished grade nine. <clears throat> the proverb is this, without you, there is no me. 
Without you, there is no me. And when we think about this carefully, we realize this is very true. Despite human pride, despite the often delusional assertion that I am a self-made man or I am a self-made woman, it's, not, it's impossible. We're all interdependent. None of us can exist within a social vacuum. If there's a social vacuum, there's no person. Because whoever we are, whatever we aspire to be, whoever we become, our identities are part of a, a very com complicated social tapestry. We're like a thread in a tapestry. We have meaning and cohesion and place only insofar as we're woven into this larger fabric. And this means that our names are given to us by someone else. Our languages are given to us by someone else. Our statuses, our roles, everything that defines us is meaningful only because those around us agree, yes, that's Tom, yes, Tom is a mechanic, yes, etc. So without you, there is no me. And as human beings, we define ourselves, we measure ourselves, we express ourselves, we fulfill ourselves, we humiliate ourselves, we disgrace ourselves, only in the context of other human beings. So that's kind of a given. And the social sciences talk about this all the time. But in our Christian faith, even though the jargon of social science is not part of the Bible, it's every bit as true. And in the Bible, we have various ways in which this interdependence is expressed. And among those ways are the one another texts. And you have these in your bulletin. And I'd invite you to keep them handy. We're just going to not look at a lot of them, but just refer to them. These are just a few of the one another texts that you will be very familiar with. And when you put them together, you realize it must be a rather important theme. There must be something within us as human beings that wants to resist the notion that I need other people and other people need me, or that I'm accountable to other people as people are accountable to me. And the writers of Scripture make it absolutely clear that without you, there's no me. And this is how they do it. They use these one another texts. These one another texts attest to, five, or to four, uh, at least four, that's all I'm going to mention this morning, just so that we're not here all day, truths that are distinctively Christian. Number one, Christians believe that every human being has dignity because every human being is created in the image of God. You have never talked to a mere mortal, C.S. Lewis pointed out in his Weight of Glory sermon in 1942. You've never talked to a mere mortal. You've only talked to immortal creatures, higher than the angels, people who are destined for eternal glory or eternal damnation. And your relationship with that person pushes them in one of two directions. Human dignity. Every one of us, no matter what our vocation, no matter what our educational opportunities, no matter what our limitations or gifts, 
Every one of us bears the image of our Creator. Every one of us bears the DNA of our Creator. We're the sons and daughters of God. And because this is true, in these one another passages, we're we're said, well, if that's true, honor one another. Submit to one another. Serve one another humbly because you're not serving a mere mortal. The second truth that is attested to by these, this one another checklist is that we're, we're imperfect people. We're, we are full of inadequacies. And generally speaking, most of us know where we're inadequate. Occasionally you'll run into a person who's totally out of touch with reality and they don't actually know that they have these weaknesses or these idiosyncrasies or these irritating qualities, but usually we know. There's lots of people around us who are kind enough to point them out when, from when we're very small. And so we usually know. None of us quite measures up. And it's easy especially when we get into intimate relationships, husband, wife, siblings, mother, daughter, father, son, etc., or in a working relationship within a church. It's easy to remind those around us of just how limited and how inadequate they are. They fall short all the time. And uh, we're kind enough to remind them in subtle ways. And so, of course, this is a human condition. And so these one another texts say, show mercy to one another. Show compassion to one another. Stop passing judgment on one another. Bear with each other. Forgive each other. Those kinds of things. The third truth that is attested by these one another passages is the fact of human fragility and vulnerability. Even those of us who appear to be the most confident with the biggest biceps or the best careers or whatever it happens to be, whatever the measure, deep inside we're really inadequate and we can be hurt easily. We're vulnerable people. And it's easy to hurt each other. And of course this again is a human condition and within the context of the body of Christ we're told therefore Encourage each other. Build each other up. Don't tear each other down. Be devoted to each other. Be loyal to each other. Don't harp on the weak points of a brother or sister in company with another brother or sister. Build each other up. Be devoted to one another. And finally, the final truth is attested to by these texts, is the human need for acceptance. We all need to be accepted. One of the greatest gifts that we can ever receive from another person is total acceptance, just as we are, so that we can be comfortable just being ourselves. And when we're married, the greatest gift that a spouse can give to a spouse is just acceptance. The greatest gift that parents can give children is acceptance. We need 
to fit. We need to belong. We need to, to know that we belong and that we're accepted. And so we're urged, and this is the umbrella term, to love one another. In fact, uh, love is the one I'm going to dwell on just very briefly in the concluding moments. Love is an umbrella term. Everything on this list comes under love because they're all different expressions of love. Love is a great umbrella term in the scripture. It's an all-encompassing term. It's like, it's like forgiveness, which is so big that everything that human beings have ever done fits inside this frame called forgiveness. That's what we sang about this morning and what Doug mentioned several times in both services. Because it's so grand. It's way bigger than revenge. <laughs> revenge is just small and petty, miserable, understandable, but it's not very big. But forgiveness is vast. It's grand. And through it, we become part of a much grander story than just our own pitiful short lives. But I want to talk a little bit about love one another. We're urged in the Christian declaration of interdependence to owe one another a debt of love. How many of you have ever had debts? Have any of you ever had student debts? Have any of you ever had mortgages? Have ever, any of you ever bought on a credit card, pay now, buy now, pay later, and so on and so forth? Of course. We, 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 we tend to do that. I'd like to show you a little uh, vivid uh, website that perhaps you've looked at before. It's the American Debt Clock. And maybe you get a little understanding of why <clears throat> there's such a buzz down in the United States on debt, huge debt. In 2009, there was an economist who wrote a book that I read called Collateral Damaged, The Marketing of Consumer Debt to America. And he traces the evolution, the metamorphosis of the word debt into a more innocuous but still just as dangerous concept called credit so that people could consume now or acquire now pay later. And so people, businesses, governments, all have learned to operate on that principle. And it's a pretty flimsy framework when the debt has to be paid back. As the crash on Wall Street recently showed, it created a lot of catastrophe. And the American debt is a huge concern. It's a vast concern, and I'm not going to go into the figures because they go so fast that you have to freeze it in order to actually keep up because they're just going way too fast, the, the accumulated debt. But the debt reached a new record on August the 31st, 2012, when it reached $16 trillion. Does anybody care to write on a blackboard the number of zeros that would be required? For trillion? I mean, we can't even get our minds around it. Uh, but according to the national debt, it now stands at over 54,000 per 
person in the United States at almost 200,000 per taxpayer. This is the total debt divided by the total population of the total number of taxpayers. And it's growing. Each citizen in the United States makes annual interest payments, according to this model, around 8,239. And that's not just their personal mortgage. So it's a big, big problem. And uh, even though Canadians are more understated and phlegmatic and not, not quite as, as uh, kind of overstated as Americans are, <clears throat> I went to the little Canadian debt clock. And as of October 10, 2013, the outstanding public debt was all respectable, averaging out to 18,000 per Canadian. So considerably less, but still a concern. Now, what does the Bible say about debt? Because we're talking about the one another text that says, owe one another a debt of love. So we've already seen that debt is pretty scary, especially if the debt is so big you can't pay it back. Oh, one another, a debt of love. You can turn it off now. People's eyes are beginning to swim. <laughs> when you read the Bible, or if you look at the documents, let's say, of Middle Eastern society of that time, debt was the main factor in transforming a peasant farmer into a slave. It was almost always personal debt, sometimes through carelessness, sometimes through catastrophe that resulted in a person having no option except to sell themselves into slavery or to sell a spouse into slavery or to sell a child into slavery. And according to the Levitical law, slaves on the Jubilee years were supposed to be given freedom. But of course, clever people, usually people in power, and usually people in power are associated with money, are very good at making injustice legal. And so they found many, many ways around this. And so, in fact, servitude was often just permanent. And it became intergenerational and became a great evil against which the prophets spoke out with great fervor. So this is the background of Paul's insistence that we should consider ourselves in debt to each other. Owe one another a debt of love. It's not just a credit card debt. It's a debt. And Paul says in Romans 13:8, owe a debt of love to one another. The writer of Hebrews in 13:1 says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt of love to one another. Keep in mind that by love, I'm not talking about something esoteric. I'm talking about something very functional, what you see on this list, the manifestations of love. Now, in conclusion, what does what does it mean to be in debt? You've, many of you have been in debt. Probably many of you still are still in debt. What does it mean? Well, the most immediate thing that comes to mind is that debt means losing some of your personal freedom. And Jesus' listeners understood this when he emphasized the importance of forgiveness. In his story in Matthew 18 of the unmerciful servant, you know the story. A servant owes so much debt, it's like the American debt, that he can't possibly pay it back. It's just impossible. He could live many, many lives, and he could live many, many successful lives, and he still wouldn't be able to pay off this debt. And so he's at the mercy 
of the one to whom he owes the debt. And he falls on his knees and he begs for forgiveness because only forgiveness is big enough to contain debt. And the person to whom he owes the debt forgives him. And the servant is so relieved because there was no hope without forgiveness. But the miserable man, forgetting how he's been treated, goes and forces a fellow servant who owes him just a pittance to pay back every penny immediately. Of course, Jesus is drawing a contrast there. And he's reminding his disciples uh, not just how many times they should forgive, but that God forgives us, that therefore we should forgive others, no matter how hard it is. Almost all worthwhile things are hard, especially forgiveness. But for you and for me, the debt of love continues. In other words, when, when you show devotion or acceptance or when you serve that other, when you honor that other, when you're kind to that other, when, you're, when you endure the idiosyncrasies of that other, you're not doing anything special. You're paying back a debt. You're paying back a debt. And so you have no claim to fame <laughs> except that you're paying back something you owe. And that's the point that Paul is trying to make. That's the point the writer of Hebrews is trying to make. That's the point that Jesus is making in this parable. And so the Christian declaration of interdependence. Without you, there is no me. The declaration of independence, you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence. Through love, serve one another. That is the Christian declaration of interdependence to which you're called and I'm called.